A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello everyone, I hope you're well. Uh, To help support the making of this podcast, uh, sign up to my Patreon site please. For a small fee, you get to show your support and you get exclusive access to new weekly videos packed with history, commentary and everything else I can think of. It's called Neil Oliver on Patreon and it would be lovely to see you there. In the meantime, here's the next episode of my love letter to the British Isles. Cue the music. That disastrous, gallant, ill-fated campaign unfolded in that water that you're looking at in the vicinity of the causeway. And for me, I just find that puts the hairs up on the back of my neck. In this podcast, we're taking our seats in a world-famous stage. A stunning location, built by our geological past, or maybe by the mighty giant Finn McCool. A fittingly dramatic setting, bearing witness to the destruction of a determined and powerful invasion fleet. Ships full of soldiers, heavily laden with gold, silver and precious stones, and bristling with the art of war. Here, in a tempestuous maelstrom, one of the final acts of the Spanish Armada was played out. I'm stepping out across Britain to discover 100 remarkable places that have shaped you, me and the whole world. I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the British Isles. In the last episode, we stood next to Elizabeth I as she delivered one of the most powerful speeches in English history. Where are we now? We're right at the tail end of that story, in one of those natural locations whose beauty and splendour literally take your breath away. It was here, facing an opponent far more powerful than them, that the last vestiges of a formidable invasion fleet, the Spanish Armada, were battered, beaten and destroyed. We're on the Antrim coast at the Giant's Causeway. This week's love letter to the British Isles comes from a location that most people, if not everyone, has at least heard of, even if they haven't 
been there. It's the natural feature called the Giant's Causeway in Antrim in Northern Ireland. Everyone will have seen photographs of it. It's that astonishing geological feature. It's volcanic. It's all those columns, those naturally created, geologically created columns of volcanic rock. But they absolutely look, and the whole place has the look of somewhere that must have been built. You can easily understand why the ancestors and and people right up into relatively modern times were just persuaded that it couldn't possibly be a natural feature, that somebody somewhere must have built it. And the most famous explanation for its creation and why it's called the Giant's Causeway is that it's supposed to have been built by an Irish giant called Finn McCool. And he wanted a causeway across the Irish Sea so that he could fight a Scottish giant called Ben and Donner. Um, So he threw these great rocks into the sea to create a bridge, something that he could walk across. And honestly, even even you and I, when you go and look at it, the shapes of the columns, you'd swear they'd been sculpted, crafted. They're so uniform and symmetrical and, and, and extraordinary. They are a product of a geological event. To get to the beginning of them, we, we go all the way back into a, a geological period called the Paleocene. And if you imagine, let's go back, say, 50, 60 million years, uh, to a point when all of the continents of the world, everything that we see on the world map now, with oceans in between, all broken up by water, well, at 50, 60 million years ago, it was all one thing called Laurasia. Geologists call this supercontinent Laurasia. It's like the plasticine was all heaped together in one lump rather than being broken up. And so therefore all the bits that would eventually be Europe and indeed England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, it was all just in that mash-up, all together in a clump. And sometime around 60 million years ago, maybe, there was a, a massive volcanic event so that molten rock, lava, magma, came up from below, from beneath the Earth's crust, and it found its way up through cracks in what was what had been a layer of chalk. So cracks and natural cracks and fissures in it allowed the lava to make its way up onto the surface, and then it kind of spilled across the surface, a bit like melted treacle or melted chocolate, it spread out and it covered an area of hundreds and hundreds of square miles. And then in some areas, as that molten rock began to cool, in some places it formed into these natural six-sided shapes. And it didn't just form like that horizontally across the surface, those shapes formed vertically down into the depths of the material. And so in that patch of that newly formed rock that would one day one day away in the future be Antrim in Northern Ireland, all that crystallising and and cracking and splitting formed these regular, mostly six-sided columns that we know today as the Giant's Causeway. And in many ways, that sort of scientific explanation for it is less interesting than Finn McCool. (laughs) I have to, I have to say, I tend to be, I tend to be much more, much more attracted by the idea that it was built by giants. But having, having said that, having said that, I know that it was, um, I know how it actually formed, and it's one of those locations that anyone seeing even just a photograph of it, far less visiting it, you can understand why people have been mesmerised by it forever. It's big, isn't it? I mean, it's not yeah. a small scale. Well, it's funny you say that. I think different people have different reactions to it. In the same way that some people, when they go and see Stonehenge, they often come away from it saying it looks small. 
Although I must say I didn't feel like that. But some people say on, on first glimpsing Stonehenge, oh, isn't it? It's quite little. And so some people, when they're confronted by the Giant's Causeway, say they think it's smaller than they were expecting. It's right down on the sea. The sea comes in on it. The tide comes in on it. And of course, when the water breaks over it, it makes it black and shiny, which adds to the allure of it. It makes it look even more perfect. On a typical day, when you go there in fair weather or foul, there'll be lots of people there. And they tend to be just sitting around, almost as if they're on a natural amphitheatre that faces out into the sea. And people just seem to be almost hypnotised by it. And they just walk around it and allow themselves to be amazed by this feature. It's one of those features in the landscape that, one of those natural wonders that just captures everybody's attention. It's like when you go to the sea, or when I do, you tend to just find yourself standing staring out. Or with a, a real fire, the conversation just dips and you find that you're just watching it. Yeah. It does something soothing for you, just watching this natural feature. The, the Giant's Causeway is one of them. It's one of those that if you go there, you just find yourself drifting off and your imagination takes over. But the fact is, I was drawn to the Giant's Causeway by, not just by what it is, but by the fact that something happened in its vicinity that's truly memorable. And as I've said all the way through the love letter to the British Isles, I'm always in search of where something happened, be it someone's birth or someone's death or a battle or, a, or an invention or a, or a great religious revelation. I want to go to where it happened. I just do. I want to go and occupy the same coordinates in the universe, wherever that was. And there are certain stories that draw me in, and one of them, absolutely, is the Spanish Armada, which we talked about last time in the context of Queen Elizabeth I going to the Tilbury Fort, where there's the Tudor Jetty, which is still there, down on the, the water of the Thames. Elizabeth went to Tilbury at the height of the invasion threat to put some backbone in the troops, and she made that fantastic speech about having the weak and feeble body of a woman but the heart and stomach of a king, and she invented the idea of English nationhood. Well, the sequel to that, the sequel to her going to Tilbury, when no one knew how the invasion was going to work out, would the Spanish troops land? Would they invade London? Well, this is the sequel. Because, of course, what actually undid the Spanish invasion was the weather. The fleet, the Spanish fleet, 120, 130 ships set out from Lisbon and La Coruna, and they were galled, you would say, in the English Channel by Sir Francis Drake and the English Navy. Uh, but the, that naval battle was pretty inconclusive, really. But a storm struck out of the blue, and, and the Spanish ended up being unable to get back to Spain. Because of the, the nature of the winds and the weather, they were forced, they had no alternative but to head up the eastern seaboard of the Long Island of England and then up to Scotland in an attempt to come round the top of Scotland and then down the outside of, of Ireland. They had to come down the west coast of Ireland. But the weather would never let up and the ships ended up coming to grief. So that's the, that's the kind of setup. When the Spanish Armada departed, when it left its home port, by far and away the most glamorous Spaniard of the whole exploit 
was a nobleman called Don Alonso Martinez da Leva en Rioja, Knight of Santiago and Keeper of Alquescar. Now that's something worth having on your business card. <laughs> Don Alonso Martinez da Leva en Rioja, Knight of Santiago and Keeper of Alquescar. He was the favourite, favourite prince, favourite nobleman of King Philip II of Spain. He had a reputation for reckless bravery in battle. And uh, we're left to imagine that he was a tall, dark and handsome as well. And his reputation was such that when it came to the Armada and the invasion fleet being put together, all the Spanish nobles wanted to be by his side. You know, they wanted to be there bathing in his golden light. Wherever Don Alonso went, there would be a, a glamorous adventure and everyone wanted to be with him. And the plan, the official plan was that if the Armada had been successful and if they had invaded England and the soldiers had all disembarked from the ships, at that point, Don Alonso would have been in command of the land forces. And so he would have led the invasion, and and then everyone's expectation was that before long they would be in London, marching to Westminster Abbey for a great ceremony of of a successful invasion, and, and they would depose the Protestant, illegitimate Queen Elizabeth, and she would be replaced with the Catholic King Philip of Spain, and, every, you know, all would be right with the world. And that was the, that was the adventure, and so... Don Alonso got aboard a great battleship, a great warship called the Rata Santa Maria Uncoronada, big by the standards of the day, bristling with guns. And so all the great and the good of, of the invasion were there so that they could be with Don Alonso. And uh, like with the, the rest of the fleet, they came into the channel, they came to grief, they got caught in the, in the storm, a veritable hurricane, and they began this desperate odyssey to try and get home the long way around coming around the top of Britain. And as for Don Alonso, his ship, with all these men aboard, they eventually limped into a place called Black Sod Bay in County Mayo. And they were driven onto rocks. And Don Alonso and, and everyone that could, they got ashore and they brought with them everything of value, everything of use, all their weapons, the cannons off the ships. And they made their way to a ruin that they could see. As they stumbled ashore, they could see this ruined fortress and they got themselves into it and dug in. Because the fact was, they were basically in enemy territory. Now, remember that at this point, obviously in history, Ireland is still a Catholic country. And the Spanish were Catholic and might have imagined a warmer welcome than they got. But as it was, wherever they came ashore, they tended to be attacked and butchered by the locals. You know, they were cut down in the shallow water or they were cut down on the beaches wherever they came in. They weren't given anything like the kind of warm welcome that they might have hoped for. So as they came in at Black Sod Bay, Don Alonso understood the situation and got them into a fortified position, you know, with their guns to try and tough it out. As day broke and they could get their coordinates and work out where they were, they realised that their ship wasn't the only one that had come into the bay. And there was another called the Duquesa Santa Ana, the Duchess Santa Ana, uh, and it was in much better nick than his um, on Coronada. It was still seaworthy. And so they all piled aboard it. So the survivors of the Uncoronada and the survivors of the Duquesa Santa Ana are now all aboard that one ship, the Santa Ana, with everything they can carry. And the, the whole thing is getting ridiculously overloaded because the Spanish nobles had also brought all their finery. Because they were expecting to invade and to go on a victory parade, they had brought all their gold chains, all their best gear, all their gold-plated swords and all the rest of it, all their stuff... And they were damned if they were going to leave any of that behind. So all of that heavy weight of metalwork was also loaded into the hold of the Duquesa Santa Ana. 
and they come limping out of Black Sod Bay, but they get caught by the weather again. The hurricane that's caused them so many problems is still going on, and it picks up and they get driven north. Rather than being able to continue south and hopefully back towards Spain, they get driven back the way they had come, and for several days they fight the weather and they fight the conditions, but they get hardly anywhere at all, and then eventually they're driven onto some barren stretch of coastline in territory that's held by a warlord, a local guy called McSweeney Nadeau, and he's part of the O'Neill clan. And the O'Neills are powerful in Ireland at this time. The O'Neill clan are the same clan from which Columba came, you know, Columba that came to Iona. You know, we talked about how he was driven out of of Ireland, and under normal circumstances he would probably just have been done away with, but because he was from the O'Neill clan and had powerful friends... He was allowed to just leave, just go away, Columba, <laughs> just go away, go somewhere else. So that's the O'Neill clan. So potentially they're in fairly dangerous terrain, although they don't know it yet. So the, the Santa Ana is in shallow water, it's getting pounded. Once again, Don Alonso and all of them, all of these hundreds of, of survivors, these shipwrecked men, they're trying to get ashore. Don Alonso does the heroic thing, waits behind until almost everybody has got off of the, the wreck and, and onto dry land and to safety. And just as he's about to leave, the ship rolls again and he's thrown against a capstan, which is a, it's a bit of winding gear that the men would walk around winding and unwinding the ropes that control the sails. Well, he's thrown against the capstan and breaks his leg. So he's desperately injured, but his men, they carry him ashore, they get him onto land and they can see, they can see over the sand dunes of the bay, they can see what is actually a a, a lake called Kilturish Lake and there's an island in the middle of it with a castle. So they get themselves into little boats and they get across to uh, the the island in the middle of Kilturish Lake and once again, as they had done before at Blacksod Bay, they dig in and they wait for nine days and then on the tenth day, there's a party of Irishmen approach and they're some of McSweeney's men this local warlord and they don't know what to expect but as it turns out they're given the message that they're welcome they're fellow Catholics and that they'll be given a decent welcome and furthermore these Irishmen have already spotted in a bay nearby another Spanish warship (laughs) and this time it's a galleass called the Girona that a galleass is a particular kind of fighting ship. In the whole of the Armada, there were only four. They're specialists. They're sort of halfway between a galley and a galleon, which is to say that they have sails, but they can also be rowed. Like the kind of thing you'd associate with the Greeks or the Romans. So they help the stranded Spaniards to get across. It sounds from the records as though Don Alonso is put onto something a bit like a sedan chair and carried because of his broken leg. The Galleas was a very efficient warship when used in relatively calm water and in formation. And famously before the Spanish Armada, 17 years before the Spanish Armada, there was a battle called Lepanto, which some people will have heard about. And it was a great fight between a, a Christian fleet and an Ottoman fleet. The Christian fleet was victorious, but Lepanto is famous amongst other things because at Cervantes, who wrote Don Quixote, the man of La Mancha, He was a galley slave and took part in the Battle of Lepanto and it was during Lepanto that he lost his hand. His hand was cut off. And those ships, they played a vital part in that battle? 
Absolutely. At the Battle of Lepanto, it was galleasses that made the difference. So the, the galleass as a warship has a noble heritage, but in the storm-tossed English Channel or in the rough water of the Atlantic off the Irish coast, not so good. They're not so stable. They're not really designed for that kind of water. But nonetheless, it's all they've got. And Don Alonso, charismatic leader of men that he is, he says, right, we're all going to get aboard this thing and we're going to make a dash for it. We're going to go home. And word has spread around Ireland and wherever there are surviving shipwrecked Spaniards, they're all gathering towards Don Alonso, like iron filings towards a magnet. They're all being pulled in his direction. And by the time they're thinking about getting aboard the Galeas Girona, there are more than 1,300 men. Plus all the treasure, plus all the gold, all the gold chains, all the coins, all the rings, all the swords all this elaborate metalwork is all loaded aboard the Galeas Girona and it's probably got at least twice as many men aboard as it should have plus all the bullion, plus all the gold and so as they wave farewell to the Irish allies and head off everyone can tell that they're sitting sickeningly low in the water you know, it's just a very, very precarious situation But Don Alonso has decided to try and get as many of his compatriots home as he can. So off they go. And then somewhere around the end of October 1588, they come to grief. The storm catches them again, just as they're in a location quite close to the Giant's Causeway. Specifically, they come to grief at a place called Lacada Point. And Lacada sounds quite Spanish, but it's actually a corruption of an Irish Gaelic word which translates as something like the long grey stone. There's a long grey reef of rock that's visible at, depending on how high or low the tide is. And the Galeas Girona comes to grief on Lacada Point in the dark, another hellish night, storm-tossed, and the Galeas Girona, hopelessly overloaded with more than 1,300 men and all that treasure, it hits the reef and it sinks just a few hundred yards from shore. And of those 1,300-plus men, Don Alonso among them, there are only perhaps nine survivors. Nine men make it ashore and are looked after by some of the locals, but the rest of them, Don Alonso included are lost and there are lots of Spanish bodies buried in graveyards in the vicinity of the Giant's Causeway because their, their bodies were eventually washed up on the shoreline and the local warlord there was called Sorley Boy MacDonnell and he, he it was that because the survivors were Catholic again unlike had been happening to them elsewhere he looked after them but he also helped himself to as much of the treasure as he could get his hands on. But the fact is, most of the gold went down in deep water, way beyond the reach of, of the Irish in the 16th century. And at that point, the Galeas Girona, the last treasure ship of the Spanish Armada, was forgotten. It drifted out of popular memory. Until in 1967, a team of divers from Belgium led by an adventurer called Robert Stenoui, turned up. 
and he and they had done their homework and they knew that the Spanish shipwreck was out there and they also suspected what was aboard it. And sure enough, over a period of weeks and months, they found the Galeas Girona and they raised the treasure. And the treasure, most of it, is on display now in the Ulster Museum in Belfast. And it's astonishing. It's astonishing stuff. Practically miles of gold chain thick gold chain, all kinds of stuff. Rings, finger rings bearing cameo adornments of like Byzantine Roman emperors. One of the most famous pieces is a golden salamander, like a little lizard shape, about as long as, your, as the index finger on your hand. And once upon a time, it was gold set with rubies. And a salamander was a traditional keepsake that men would wear aboard ship because it was supposed traditionally to keep you safe from fire, fire aboard ship. I interviewed Robert Stenewy. I talked to him about the treasure ship, the Galeas Girona, and he told me something that I never forgot, which was that in what ended up being his last dive on the wreck, he found a, a little finger ring, a little gold ring, and it's in the form of a belt, unclasped, which is to say like a belt that you would wear around your waist, but with the buckle undone. And on one of the terminals, there's a, a hand holding a heart, it's a beautifully fine decorated little item. So you've got a, an opened, unclasped belt, which is a symbol of submission and a hand holding a heart. And it's almost certainly a love token that was given by a woman, let's say, to one of the men aboard the ship. And it was lost in amongst everything else. And engraved around the outside of the ring, it says, No tengo mas que darte, which means I have nothing more to give you. And when I spoke to Robert, we speculated that perhaps it was the ocean telling him that it was all he was going to get. And it was the last piece of the treasure that he found. No tengo mas que darte. I have nothing more to give thee. What that must have been like going on that dive. Oh, well, I mean, there's documentary footage of them bringing up the buckets, bucket loads of gold, literally. You know, black plastic buckets, as they tip out the water, you can just see that they're full of gold coins, gold chains. It's like every child's dream of, of sunken treasure that they brought up. Now, the point of it all is that when you contemplate the story of the Spanish Armada, you tend to read the same account all the time about the ships arrive in the English Channel and Sir Francis Drake deploys fire ships and there's a bit of an inconclusive battle and then this, the storm scatters the Spaniards. And for most people, the story breaks off there. But if you're interested in how it actually turned out for some of those Spanish sailors, Spanish soldiers, and a character like Don Alonso Martinez de Leva on Rioja, Knight of Santiago and Keeper of Alcoescar, you can go to the Giant's Causeway and it's worth going to anyway just as a wonder of the world but you can go and you can stand on the cliffs and you can look out at Lacada Point you can look out and know that you're looking down at the spot on planet Earth where some of the last of the sailors and soldiers of the Spanish Armada came to grief you know you can look down at that boiling water with the froth and all the rest of it and you can consider that that was where those Spanish men and boys breathed their last before they disappeared for all time. And all that was left behind them was their golden treasure, 
which would lie in that water for centuries before it was found by a team of divers. So if you're motivated like I am to go to in search of where great events in history unfolded, and just as I suggested that you could go to Westminster Abbey and the tomb of Lady Margaret Beaufort in search of the Wars of the Roses, if you're in search of the Spanish Armada, you can go to the Giant's Causeway and know that some of the end of that disastrous, gallant, ill-fated campaign unfolded in that water that you're looking at in the vicinity of the causeway. And for me, I just find that puts the hairs up on the back of my neck. This event feels like it's from another age, but when you put it in the context of when the Giant's Causeway was formed, the 500 years or so when it happened is not that long ago. No, it's not. No, no, not when you consider that this, the Giant's Causeway itself, that geological feature, uh, was 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 sparked into existence 50, 60 million years ago when there was no such place as Britain. There was no such place as Ireland. All of the dry land of planet Earth was a single continent that geologists call Laurasia. It was a world unimaginably different and the Giant's Causeway was a product of that time and that place. But now, the unfolding of time, geological time, has seen to it that a tiny little fragment of that volcanic event is now part of the Antrim coast in Northern Ireland. But it's part of the world's story. It's a tiny little fragment left behind from the making of the world. And then, as you say, more recently, a few centuries ago, was the scene set for the last act in the drama of the Spanish Armada of 1588. When you look out at the sea, is it sadness you feel or the excitement of the sunken treasure? I think it's, you know, it's, this, it's the story for me. I think I've probably said before that I'm always quite interested in museum cases and whatever, at seeing gold and silver and, and, and finery. I do get why people are excited by it, but... I'm always more affected by simpler objects as long as they seem to have been touched by humankind. A stone tool or the edge of an iron blade. For me, I find that more evocative and even more evocative yet than artefacts and objects are are stories. To me, it's to go to the Giant's Causeway, it's to go to the cliffs overlooking Lakada Point and it's to conjure in my imagination a character like Don Alonso Martinez de Leva on Rioja, Knight of Santiago and Keeper of Alquiscar, and, and to imagine him setting out on his grand adventure and him doing his best as the, as the days unfolded to try and get himself and as many of his fellow Spaniards as possible back home. And it was beyond him. And to stand near to the Giant's Causeway and know that his adventure came to an end there, it's definitely sadness that I feel. Definitely sadness. A landmark building, deeply interwoven with the history of the British Isles. Camped beside it in 1944, General Dwight Eisenhower planned the D-Day landings. William Shakespeare and his troupe of actors performed in its great hall. Henry VIII's bloated and corrupt shadow 
falls darkly on its red bricks. Full of intrigue and power, it's a place with panache, a palace that gave birth to a book, the all-time bestseller that changed the Western world. Next time in my love letter to the British Isles. To help support this podcast, which is and always will be free, and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment videos every week, sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. Be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. And please write a review of this week's podcast and share it with your friends. For further reading about these favourite destinations of mine, you can try my book. It's called The Story of the British Isles in 100 Places and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the British Isles is produced by Neil Oliver and Paul Ratcliffe for Fat Belly Films. Music's by Malcolm Goldie. Social media producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. Finance is taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. And special thanks to the people across history who have made and continue to make these isles such an incredible place. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 